Hi, welcome to Save for the Blind podcast. My name is Dylan Rogers. I'm with Carson Odegaard, and we are interviewing Brian Huber and Jason Koslovich, our waterfowl biologists. How are you doing, guys? Good. Doing great. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> it's a good place to be, I promise. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian and Jason, um, you are the waterfowl biologist here at California Waterfowl. And I kind of want to know just some a little bit background on who you are and how you got involved with CWA, how you how you got here and, you know, college wise and what your path was to getting here, hunting, all those sort of things. Um, so, Brian, let's start with you first. Yeah, um, I didn't really grow up hunting much. Uh, we grew up fishing, not hunting so much. I mean, hunting when I was a kid consisted of, you know, kind of going for a uh, walk in the woods with a deer rifle. Um, we never really harvested anything. Um, I grew up in South Lake Tahoe, um, pretty small town. Um, I got accepted into Santa Barbara City College, and I went to school down there for a few years. And uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, so I kind of just floated through City College, um, had a little bit of fun down in Santa Barbara. And uh, with no real career path, I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of moved back home. And uh, me and a good friend really got into salmon fishing. And so we would drive down from South Lake Tahoe. Um, I was working for my dad, and we would drive down to Chico every single weekend. We'd camp at the river, and we'd just salmon fish like crazy. And I thought it was really cool, and it kind of got me back into uh, outdoor, you know, doing outdoor activities and stuff. And um, one of my buddies from Santa Barbara was going to school at Chico State, and I was like, well, this is the coolest thing ever. I could go to Chico State, finish school, and just salmon fish all the time. And so – you know, I kind of still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I learned that biology was really interesting to me. And so I wanted to learn more about fishing so I could learn more about how to catch them better. Yeah. And so I went to Butte College. Um, I got some under undergraduate stuff done, and then I transferred to Chico State. And um, my buddy who got me into salmon fishing, he's like, hey, you got to try this duck hunting stuff. And I was like, dude, I don't want to go duck hunting. Like, <laughs> Why would you, you do get that? Up, get up yeah. early, you know, you have to buy all this equipment, sit in the water, you know, like it does not sound fun. Like I don't want to go shoot a duck. And he finally convinced me, and I went out, and, um, you know, I still remember the day. We were at Calusa Refuge, and I remember, you know, these pair of these three mallards just circled right around and they came right in front of me and I was just at awe of how my buddy called him in and how everything he said you know where to set the decoys and everything just worked and brought these birds in and I, he, you know after the birds left he's like why didn't you shoot like, dude you're I don't know what I'm doing yeah. like you yeah. never told me to shoot Been I, don't there know, before. I don't know what I'm yeah. doing you know and uh so that really sparked my interest in duck hunting and I was walking through the Chico State campus, and I saw a flyer for a waterfowl ecology class. And I was like, whoa, there's a class about ducks? Are you kidding me, you know? And so I got really excited. And I went and talked to the professor, uh, Jay Bogiato, mm-hmm. and uh, – Yeah, so so Jay is no longer with us. He passed two years ago, I believe, yeah. two years ago. Um, he was one of my professors at Chico State as well. Uh, very quick cancer diagnosis and passing. He's influenced more people in the I can tell. Yeah. waterfowl industry from Chico State than any person that I have ever known. I specifically took a class with Jay where we had our own unit at Howard Slough, and me and him would go check water every day. Um, 
together and and that was our class and the amount of people that he turned out of Chico State that did waterfowl ecology, the waterfowl classes, anything to do ornithology, um, zoology, he was in charge of and the passing was very, very unexpected and it yeah. shook kind of a lot of the people that had his classes. And I think Brian, you were one of the first to do the CWA uh, chapter, yeah. chapter on yeah. campus that I actually ended up being a part <clears throat> of, but you were one of the first. Yeah, we helped start it. So what, what happened is I, uh, sorry for breaking out. No, man. you're good. Talked about Jay in a while. No, hey, I mean, he obviously <sighs> impacted your life yeah. in such a positive way that, yeah. I mean, it, it, it obviously led to where you are today. Yeah. So it's important that you talk about him and then it's important that it still impacts you. You yeah. know, he's an important part yeah, of your he, life. Yeah, he had a good influence on CWA and wanted to see I'm sure that's probably where you got your wood duck interest in because one of the things that we did at that club is a CWA chapter, uh, non academic or academic, excuse me, non fundraising. Um, we manage wood duck boxes. And so I'm guessing that's where you got your interest from it. Um, I mean, it really started when I started working with CWA okay. um, originally, but yeah, what I was trying to say is, uh, I went to Jay, I went to his class, uh, his office. God dang, why can't I get <laughs> so annoying? Um, I went to his office and I was like, Hey, I'm a duck hunter. Yeah. I want to take your class. And he's like, Oh, this class is for biologists. Like, yeah, you can't yeah. just be a duck hunter. You have yeah. to like really want to know the science. And I was like, well, that's kind of discouraging, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so anyways, uh, he's, I was like, well, what do I need to do to get in your class? And he said, well, you have to get all these classes taken care of yeah, first before you can even take yep. this class. Yep, yep. And I was like, okay, well, I'll be in your class, you know, look mm-hmm. for me, you know? And so uh, I took his class, and I, that's where I really got the passion for um, being waterfowl biology specific. Gotcha. And uh, me and him, we really didn't get along very well during school because <laughs> yeah. I was – I would go duck hunting a lot, so I'd miss class. I mean, I was there with you. I had like organic chemistry and physics too, and you know all these really tough classes with labs and stuff. And so I, you know, I kind of floated by the class, and uh, he's like, "Oh, Brian's not a serious student," you know. But but later, after I started working and kind of starting my career, we became really good friends and really close and stuff. So yeah, no, I think the. one of the first times I even met you, you guys did a career fair for CWA, and it might have been you and Caroline were there um, at the career fair. Yeah, and I remember yeah, talking, talking, State. yeah, yeah right. exactly, yep. talking to you about potential and and like we talked about in the first podcast, I had actually interviewed with Brian and Caroline for a banding position. Um, it's crazy how interconnected the community is through uh, Chico State, Davis, Humboldt. A lot of those wildlife yeah. biology majors come from there. And it seems like everybody knows everybody. And if you have that passion, like myself or Brian did, like you'll find your way into the industry. Yeah. yeah. Despite yep. if someone's saying, nope, can't do it. And you're like, yeah. well, I'll show you I can do it. I'll be yeah. here. Yeah. And so that's uh, – so I got the interest in waterfowl biology from that. And then um, me and a friend were like, oh, you know, we heard of CWA. And we're like, hey, we should start a Chico State CWA chapter. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we got together with Jay Boggiato and we started our own Chico State CWA chapter. And it was perfect because we had all these CWA employees yeah. come in yeah, exactly. and talk to us. And then we kind of got to know them. And then they're yeah. like, hey, you know, we're hiring. We're like, hey – we want to work for you. Yep. And then yeah. it, you know, it really worked Perfect. out great. Yeah, yeah, I believe that chapter's still going strong. Um, it's uh, it slowed down, yeah, but I I don't know where the status of it is they, right now. Yeah, but. it was it was great when I was there, yeah. I don't know, six years ago. We we brought in all the staff that we have here to these college students, and a lot of the times we would hire people out of that 
out of that out chapter of class, because yeah, chapter, yeah. they were reaching out an initiative, you know, putting themselves out there to to want to learn about what Brian's doing or what uh, Chad Sintier and the wetlands are doing or um, anything to do with CWA. And, and just that initiative, you know, allows somebody that's hiring or a prospective hire to it's, it's a big step. So yeah. um, I'm hoping it's still around and still kicking. I believe it is, but yeah, Ch- Chico state pushes them out. <laughs> yeah, and Sounds so, like uh, it. that, that summer after we started that chapter, my buddy got hired on as a summer banding technician and so I would go out with him and volunteer and just, you know, I showed up, volunteered, helped him, got to know his boss at the time. And then he had to go back to school and the, they needed somebody for pintail rocket knitting. And so he's like three days before the job started because I applied and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be so happy to get this job. And I never heard <laughs> anything. And then three days before the job started, he called me and he's like, hey, you want to come work for me? I'm like, yep, I'll be there. And <laughs> so, I mean, the rest is kind of really history. I mean, I've been, uh, that was in 2009. So this is my 14th year wow. um, with CWA and it's been off and on, you know, I started seasonally. I did uh, a couple other jobs. I worked for the state for a couple other jobs and stuff, but, uh, full time now, I think for eight years or so yeah. with CWA. Wow. So yeah. Don't regret it for a second. No, I mean, it's fun. I mean, I, you know, we, our job, uh, me and Jason are lucky. I mean, we, we basically get a hunt year round. We just don't use shotguns. Right. So we, we (laughs) use airboats, we use rocket nets, we use traps. I mean, it's for somebody who's passionate about hunting and ducks and everything. I mean, that's really, you know, that's kind of the way I look at it. And that's, that's why I, excuse me, originally applied was hands-on. You're always hands-on, whether it's during the season or when you guys are banding, you're always having your hands on these waterfowl and it just fills that gap of when you're not actually hunting, you know, you get to go trap them help the populations in one way or the other. Yep. Yeah, and I've always I've always said our worst day at work is just picking cockleburr out of a rocket net. That's literally <laughs> as bad as it gets for us, and that's like, you're still outdoors, you're still, you know, at a refuge in a parking lot somewhere, picking cockleburr out of a net, listening to geese fly over. I mean, it's not. Yeah, you're, you're still enveloped in hunting yeah, in some aspect. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound like a bad place to be. I mean, I've been, I've been to all the environments that all of you guys have, you know, worked in, whether it be... Um, the hatchery or whether it be wood ducks or whether it be a kid's camp. And I've seen you guys all kind of operate in your own environment and field, if you will. And, you know, I see the value in what you do. And so that's why I think it's important for others to see the value in what you do and hear from you directly. I mean, I didn't know that you didn't grow up hunting. I just assumed you did. Right. Yeah. A lot of people assume that. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like, that perfect age too. I was in college and, um, you know, just really channeling, you know, a passion, you know, I'm, I have an addictive personality. So yeah. when I jump into something, I mean, I go, go all in. So, um, yeah, I mean, from that moment of kind of seeing that ecology class and my buddy kind of talking me into starting hunting, I mean, it's changed my whole life, you know, my whole career path and everything to yeah, where I mean, I'm at now. It, it brings you to who you are now. And I mean, and so many people know you from, from wood duck and, so many different things like that. And it's crazy to think if like you didn't maybe go hunting with your friend that day, or if you didn't take any of those classes, like where, what direction would you be? I mean, what, where did you see your career path going prior? Probably to would have stuck with fishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, before Close that, second. I mean, yeah, we don't need to say where I was heading in Santa Barbara, but yeah. <laughs> it's still fishing. I mean, come yeah, on. yeah. Career path wise. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, so what about you, Jason? I mean, where did, all of this start for you. Did you grow up hunting? Did you 
get involved with it through school? I mean, where did you see your career path going before now? So as a young kid, ever since I was two weeks old, I was on a boat on the ocean with my dad fishing. And then when I turned 11, he said, uh, I used to duck hunt before you were born, so I want to get back into it. <laughs> Let's go. And I was so hesitant to get my hunter safety course completed. I didn't want to do anything with hunting. I just wanted to fish because that's all I knew. Yeah. Absolutely. And finally, they drug me into the hunter safety course. I got my license. And that, I think I got my license on a Saturday. And that Sunday, I think we went out to Los Banos Refuge. And I remember it was socked in fog. My dad hadn't hunted in 11 years. My uncle, who went with us, had never duck hunted either. <laughs> And we didn't have Thule seats. We got, I don't even know if we parked in the right parking spot. <laughs> didn't even have waders. We stumbled out through the fog. We did not have Thule seats. So I sat in the water. I remember we sat there from, I mean, shoot time till shoot time. And we killed a total of three ducks. I don't, I, I shot at a couple. I think I claimed them, but obviously I didn't hit them. <laughs> and uh, I was hooked. I, I couldn't even stand them. I don't know. I was just crazy. I was hooked. And then that following shoot day, we went out to a different refuge and, we shot limits and it was like over from there. Like I could love duck hunting. And, uh, so I hunted with my dad and my uncle for years as a youth. And then I saw, I was active on the refuge forums as a kid because I was so into duck hunting and I always (laughs) asked questions on there. And I saw CWA posted that they were hosting junior only hunts during regular season at Grizzly Ranch for the first time ever. So I applied and they gave me a date and I showed up and it was like the best duck hunt I've ever had. Like I shot my limit in like 20 minutes. (laughs) And then I called on the radio like, hey, I'm in blind, whatever, I need to be picked up. And they're like, oh, we don't pick people up till 9 o'clock. Oh. And so I sat there watching ducks land in the decoys and shot a couple specks. And I just had like a super good hunt, right? Yeah. And uh, I was like, one day I'm going to – there was a – I forget who it was. It may have even been Jeff Smith. I don't know if he worked there that long. It may have been George Obestat. Someone gave me a ride back in the boat. And I was like, one day I'm going to work for CWA and do his job, and I'm going to hunt this property every day, right? <laughs> and I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. <laughs> And then uh, come time for, uh, you know, I was in, in high school trying to figure life out. And I saw a video or a post or something that CWA was hiring for waterfowl technicians. And I was like, oh, you could do that? That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm going to take a biology career and, and do that. So I went to UC Santa Cruz because they had a good biology department, which was turned out to be almost uh, purely marine ecology. Yeah. Um, so I basically have a degree in marine marine biology, and uh, I graduated. I was doing some volunteer work, tagging salmon in a creek near there. I had no idea where to even apply for a job, and lo and behold, on the refuge forms, <laughs> my dad texts me. He's like, "Hey, some guy's hiring from CWA on the refuge forms," and I was like, "Yeah, right. Whatever." I go and look at it, and it's Brian Huber <laughs> looking for a summer banding technician, and I was like, "Oh, I guess it's a job opportunity." So I applied, and. Uh, he called me back. He's like, hey, we'd love to hire you, but our previous technician decided to come back for the summer. We'll keep you in mind. I was like, I'll never hear back from him. And then like middle or end of August, hey, you want to catch some pintail? And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> so uh, yeah, started with them September of 2015 and never left. And I got real fortunate. This field is really hard to get into. Yeah. So like a lot of people jump around seasonal positions for years before they even get an opportunity at something permanent. And a lot of times it's a desk job and it's not very fun. But I got lucky in that the hunt program was just ramping up. Um, and so Jeff Smith uh, kept me on over winter for that. And the egg salvage program was just ramping up as well. And so I kind of had a, a springtime job and we weren't doing much banding. And so that kind of carried me into being a full-time position. And then from there, we just kind of, like I said, like history. We just kind of <laughs> grew into a 
a, a full-time position. And Yeah, so how, how have your roles shifted? Because now you're egg salvage coordinator, correct? Yep. But previously you weren't. Right. What right. was your previous position? I was just a waterfowl technician. So how did that kind of come about with the egg salvage stuff? Um, so I, I was there for the second year the egg salvage. CWA ever had the egg salvage program. It started in 2014. Um, I think 2015 was the real first year that they did anything. 2016, that spring, I was there helping nest drags, farmer pickups, all that stuff. And then uh, the former hunt program, uh, or excuse me, the former egg salvage program coordinator moved on and I'd been there the longest and had worked that program the most. And so I just kind of stepped into that position luckily. And uh, yeah, and then from there, I mean, we've always had programs that have stuck around like pintail trapping and summer mallard banding, but we've also taken on new programs like the wheat program, um, rice levy program, um, RCPP, NBHIP, all these nesting programs and other programs that kind of that filled in. And so it's kind of changed from there. I'm still, my official title is the Egg Salvage Program Coordinator, yeah. but that's only, you know, three months out of the year and the rest of the year I'm doing lots of other stuff. So so you wear many hats is what I'm hearing. Yeah, we both do. Both wear yeah. many hats. Yeah, so the way, um, when our previous supervisor moved on, um, there was a waterfowl coordinator position. And um, so Jason basically start, took over the Egg Salvage Program and then I took over the Wood Duck Program and then together we just managed the whole waterfowl programs together. So. Wow. I mean, doesn't sound like an easy task for sure. Yeah, I mean, luckily it's with Jason, and we get, we get along pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you get along with the person you're yeah, working with, it helps out. <laughs> I don't think we've ever gotten into an argument, ever. No. <laughs> maybe maybe fishing or something. Yeah, yeah but, but like, it's been yeah. really smooth sailing. Yeah. Roughly how long have you guys worked together? Since September 2015. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So, I mean, we're, we're coming up on 10-ish years, yeah. almost. Yeah. Wow. I think it's yeah. just past eight years, so. You know, I think... Going off of that, you know, hunting and your background and ducks and kind of just all the things, I know that, and I've learned since I've been here, that being a hunter, there's kind of different elements of rewards when you kill a bird and you get that kind of reward. Um, And I know one of those biggest things is like shooting a banded bird. So kind of what I want to know is what is banding and what is that banding explanation from you guys? What does that look like? So, I mean, in the most general sense, banding um, is the, the, the art or whatever you want to call it of catching a bird and putting a band on it. Right. So basically what you're doing is you're catching a bird, you're giving it a unique band and that the way I like to explain it, it's like giving the bird a social security number, Hell right? Yeah. So now and, it has like describe this that band. What do you say when you mean band? <clears throat> Aluminum uh, clamp-on band. Okay. It's on like a thick metal ring. Okay, it goes around their leg. So a bracelet. Um, yep. Okay. Yeah, bracelet on their foot. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so with that band, now now you've basically given the bird its own unique social security number, right? So that bird is now tied with that band number. So whatever that bird does, and if a hunter shoots it or reports it, now you, you can get um, two points of data, right? So where you banded it and then where the hunter harvested it. And what banding okay. originally helped do was establish the flyways. And so oh. they would ban birds and then that would, you know, you ban a bird in Canada and then somebody shoots it in California. You're like, wait a minute, like they're coming all the way from over there, like way back in the day. And so that originally helped establish a lot of the flyways. 
Um, but now it's used a lot now for determining like survival rates, uh, age ratios, and kind of um, a way to keep track of the population health of birds in a general sense. Can either of you talk about kind of the advances in um, bird banding with telemetry data and backpacks that are now being used? Yeah, so we've uh, partnered with USGS, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, a bunch of agencies are starting to use these GSM. They're basically transmitters is what we call them for short, but they're little backpacks for ducks. For geese, they put them as honest collars. Um, they're little solar-powered backpacks. That how, t- how, how small are we talking? 10 grams is what they make them down to now. Okay. So, I mean, you're, you're talking half the pack of a size of gun. Like, it's tiny. Yeah, the size of my thumb, maybe, maybe okay. even smaller. Like two shotgun shells sitting next to each other. Maybe. Okay, so yeah. Like a that. big one, yeah. No, they, yeah. they have tiny ones. Like, this summer, we're putting them on fowler ropes, which if you don't know what fowler rope is, it's like, uh, you'll see them when you're duck hunting. They're little white birds that fly around. Very small. They're shirt. smaller so, so than a blackbird. This big, yeah. They're okay. tiny. And they, cool. they can wear transmitters. But anyways, they have solar powers, solar panels so they can charge whenever they get sunlight. And whenever they're in cell service, they can transmit their locations and any locations they have backlogged from when they weren't in cell service. And you can change all the settings and tell them, you know, I want every hour a data point or every five minutes a data point or once a day, or, and I want it to transmit every hour. I want it to transmit once a month. You can change all that, but basically that you can stick them on birds and let them go and they go do their thing. And you can tell based on their accelerometer data. So they have accelerometers inside of them, which tell you how fast they're moving and stuff. You can tell whether they're sitting on a nest, whether or not they're feeding, sleeping, all that stuff. And you can see where they've been throughout the whole year. I mean, transmitters last several years, three, four, five years sometimes. And so you can gather data way more efficiently um, than with bands, right? Because with bands, you only know where it was put on and where it was reported when someone shoots it or Mm -hmm. another bander finds it or whatever. So you only get two data points. Well, with these transmitters, you get a data point every hour. And so, I mean, we're not doing thousands of birds like we yeah, do bands. Yeah. You're only doing a handful at a time, but you get a huge data set from them. And then you can ask a bunch of questions that you couldn't answer with, with just regular banding. So gear. how long have these been in use? Um, in the last couple of years, say 10 years, 20 years? Maybe when we start putting them yeah, on. I'd say maybe eight years ago. Okay, but so, so it's relatively new in the, <clears throat> in the science world. Yeah, but, but so previously what you'd have to use is a, they call them the VHA, VHS transmitters. And so it's um, kind of like um, dog trackers, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah. So you'd, you'd put it in there, and then you'd have to use the antenna. To oh, go and, and go scan it. them yeah. in the field. Yeah, so that was, I mean, that was really tricky because you could kind of triangulate where they were, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't get precise movements, you know, actual maps. I mean, with the new technology, I can look on my phone, pull up an individual bird, and it'll show me exactly where it's gone in the last year. I mean, it's yeah. amazing. And so it's kind of shown, like, um, you, you can see like shifting migrations, right? So we've had like some birds that go like to Prairie Canada. And if the conditions are not good, we've had them bolt all the way up to Alaska, right? So, so is that what that. we're like, yeah, is that what we're seeing from this data is just like real time conditional shifts in patterns? Like what's, what's the biggest takeaway from the data that we're receiving from these? I mean, you're really getting, um, a full map of what these birds are doing throughout the entire year. So you're like one year we had some uh, white fronted geese that came down from Alaska and they flew completely over the ocean. They stopped in the ocean, took a small break, and then they flew right over the Golden Gate Bridge, circled around and then landed in the Sacramento Valley. 
So you're getting the full map, like mm-hmm. exactly of where these birds are going, what they're doing. I mean, who who would have known that wide-fronted geese are flying from Alaska to California and I think it was less than three days. Yeah, via the yeah. ocean and not over Oh, right land. over the ocean, exactly, yeah. yeah. And a lot of the small-scale small scale stuff that they're getting off of them is pretty interesting too. Like, you know, birds typically at in daytime go to the big sanctuaries, all the, the National Wildlife Refuge closed zones, all that stuff, and then at night they go out to the rice to feed up in Sacramento Valley anyways. And so they can look at different species and how much they move that night. So they USGS did a study on that and I think they found that pintail were the farthest movers. Yeah. Right? right. But most birds were Mallards less than less than like five yeah. okay. miles yeah. from the refuge at night. So, so all kinds of far. all kinds of little stuff like that yeah. you would never know from banding data, you know what I mean? Because like it, it's almost overwhelming because you have so much information that you actually have to come up with a question and then the information is there to answer, you know? So like, gotcha. how much are pintail moving at night? Okay. We can, we can sift all through all the data and answer that question. So now. it's, it's yeah, a whole, it's, it's a whole new data set now where, you know, potential grad students or folks of that can now hypothesize questions and really get valuable information based off of that and find trends or, Population trends, um, drought trends, that sort of thing from this data. Yep. Yeah, yeah they you know they were, they were correlating it. We had the crazy fires uh, two years ago, yeah, yeah. and they were they were showing the shift in migration around the smoke and the fires. Wow. coming down to the Sacramento Valley with some of the white. That's wild. Games. So, yeah, all ki- all kinds of stuff you can get from the new technology. Um. So speaking of, you know, technology and how things have advanced. I mean, Sitka, they were a big part in these backpacks and transmitters, weren't they? Yeah, yeah so we uh, we got a grant through Sitka, and they um, sponsored about um, 20 of the 40 transmitters that we put on right after duck season um, in 2023. Um, so, yeah, they were a big partner, and um, we were able to put 20 transmitters on through CWA. What were they going on? We were targeting postseason mallards. Okay. So we wanted to see um, – our goal was to see what the mallard. So uh, traditionally, most of the mallard banding in California takes place during the spring and summer, yeah. late summer when they're molting, and then on younger birds, kind of in the spring, right? So we have a good understanding of our local birds, right? But right at duck season, right after duck season, that's when the migration's at the fullest. So we should have all the birds from the north are going to be pushed down in California, yeah. Especially in a wet year like last year, right? Where up north there was a lot of snow, a lot of cold weather, pushed birds farther south. So our goal was to try and catch birds that would potentially be in California during the end of duck season, but during breeding season, nesting season, they're going to move somewhere else. Okay. And so uh, it was pretty remarkable. At one point, we had four birds um, that ended up in Canada. Um, We had quite a few in Washington, Oregon, and then quite a few that moved up to northeastern California. It was pretty neat. Um, I'm sure most people are aware of the situation up in Klamath, but... We had a lot of transmitter birds that kind of headed up to Klamath, flew right over Klamath, saw how poor the conditions were, and and kept heading north, you know. And we actually did have one bird that stuck around in Sump 1B all year yeah. and molted there. So no, um, we, we tried to catch him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just how important that northeastern California is for birds moving, uh, yeah. nesting. Um, and then we also had quite a few of those 40 that stayed local. So I think we had about okay. 18 that stayed fairly local. And they're still local? Are you guys still tracking them to this day? Yeah. Um, a lot of them, some of them have died. I mean, that's kind of a vulnerable part of the year for them when they're nesting. A lot yeah. of them we put on females. And the females, you know, when they're nesting, you know, they're sitting on a nest on the ground. They're very, very vulnerable to predators. So we did, we lost quite a few of the transmitters, which is fairly normal. 
Um, but yeah, a lot of them, most of them are still transmitting today and we can, and still track them. So it'll be neat. Um, some of them probably are out of cell service, out of range. So once okay. they start migrating back down and they get close to a cell phone tower or whatever, they'll dump that data. and then So we'll you get all the data, it. even though you were getting it at the time. Yep. Yeah. Oh, they they cool. log the data on the, on the transmitters. So, wow. Yep. And, uh, you know, I think following the transmitters and follow, you know, backpacks and all those things, there's even more new technology that you guys have used. Tell me about rocket netting. <laughs> rocket netting is not new technology. It, I, no, no. It's, they've been using it's it for... It's new to me. Yeah, so they've been using it. <laughs> I was like, dang, whenever yeah. I started working here, I was like, I have never heard of rocket Even a lot before. of duck hunters are like, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's new to me. Yeah. So tell me they, about They've it. been doing it for... Um, I don't know. Uh, probably started in the 30s or 40s. If you were to imagine. see the equipment we're using, you're like, oh yeah, that was built in the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you want to go? Yeah, I mean, rocket netting. It, it, it's it sounds simple on paper, but it can be pretty frustrating. But basically, we take a big net. It's they're 30 by 60 feet. I think it's the rough measurements of them. They're a big rectangle. Fold them up into long strips. You can set. A couple of them end to end, so you can get up to three in a row. So you're looking at a 180 foot wide span of net, and then each net gets three rockets and five anchors. The back end's anchored, the front ends are attached to the rockets. We shove these old school uh, gunpowder charges in these rockets. They're homemade. I mean, they're professionally made, but they look like they're made in someone's garage. They're pipes, <laughs> pipes with rebar and chain welded to them. Shove these charges in there, hook the charges up to a wire, run that wire about three to 500 yards away. And then uh, we, we try to set them in areas that birds are concentrated. Most times we're using rocket nets, we're targeting pintail. Post-season, we have them on bait because it, you know everything after duck season has been hammered by birds. They've eaten everything that's there. And so you can pour out some fresh bait and it's like candy to them. And so we'll put uh, those nets on the edge of a rice field or something, pour some rice out in front of the nets and that'll attract the birds. Right now we're doing pre-season pintail and everything being flooded right now is fresh food. It's all full of, you know, swamp timothy, smartweed, watergrass, all the good stuff. And so pouring bait out doesn't do anything. So we're trying to get them as they haul out in the middle of the day to preen their feathers and dry off and sleep on these roads and islands. That's where we try to get them. And so we're stripped. We put these nets out in those areas. And uh, if we have a, you know, postseason shot on bait, we're getting up at 5 a.m. and checking those nets right at gray light. If we're doing it this time of the year where they're they're uh, loafing and sleeping during the middle of the day, we don't check nets till 11 a.m. But um, yeah, putting those nets in high percentage areas, checking on them frequently. We have trail cams that send pictures to our cell phones. So if we're at home and a net loads up, we can all pack our stuff up and run up there real quick. And then uh, when the conditions are right, typically you want a good shot Depends on the time of the year and the situation. A good shot could be 50 birds. A good shot could be 300. Yeah. Um, but when when everything looks right, and you're you know you're gonna catch a lot of birds without killing very many. You uh, whoever's on the spotting scope, typically it's Brian or myself, calls whoever's on the detonator, one of our technicians or one of us, and uh, you ready? Yep, shoot it. Boom. The net goes off. It fires the far end of the the top end of the net over the top of the birds. And uh, then it's a mad dash to get out there because they're flopping in the water and uh, you want to get them out of the net as quickly as possible. A lot of times they get tangled up and that net can hold them down yeah. and can drown them. So the more manpower and the quicker you react, the better. And uh, we take pretty good pride in saying that we have less than a 1% mortality rate 
So we do a good job of getting the birds out in time. And then once we get them in crates, we uh, thin all the crates out, make sure all the birds are, are good to go, spread the bands, band them, and take some data sometimes. Sometimes we do wing and weight measurements, kind of get a body condition assessment on the birds. Um, sometimes if we get a big net and it's hot outside or it's raining or something, we just ban them and release them as fast as we can go. Yeah. Ring and fling them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ring and fling. So, yeah, so I think, yeah, we got a video here. I'm sure I'm going to have questions after this. So if we could play this video, let's see what's going on. So this is 2023 uh, postseason. So you got uh, birds on the bait right there, shot the net, a um, couple of different net shots there. But you can see, I mean, you really have to get the birds within a five feet or so of that net, or they, they'll have time to kind of skirt out of there. So, Bands, the data. Bands, data. You got to, you know, you can pretty much tell the age and sex of the bird just by their wing. So training, you know, all the new guys on how to look at the wing and what to look for for adults versus juveniles. And, you know, that's a question we get asked a lot is, you know, how do you, how, how old can you tell a bird is? And basically the different age categories are it's either a hatchier bird or an adult bird. And that's pretty much as much as we can say, unless the bird's banded. So if you band a hatchier bird, it's kind of cool. Cause you, you know, the bird's whole life story, you know exactly how old it is when it gets shot or recaptured or whatever. So, so, I mean, you guys have probably been on tons and tons and tons of net shots. What's the most oddball bird that you guys have ever caught in a net? Yeah, probably just hybrids. Um, we okay. get hybrids now and then, and, and explain, of, explain to the people what a hybrid is and, and kind of what you're seeing. So in the 14 years I've done it, I think we've only caught two hybrids. Well, roughly? American, well, American Eurasian. Eurasian yeah. Yeah, we and then we got a pintail green wing, remember, at Dry Creek? Yeah. And then a uh, oh, mallard sprig. Yeah, you get them every once yeah. in a while. We get American Eurasian widgeon hybrids pretty frequently during uh, postseason, like you just saw. Widgeon love eating that fresh bait, and so sometimes – especially if we're tagged out on pintail, not tagged out, but if we've met our 1,000 pintail quota and our net's loaded with widgeon, I was like, well, they're eating our bait. Let's catch them and ban them anyway. So we yeah. shoot the net over them, and Brian's got the eye for those Eurasians. I mean, I've been sitting there like, come on, let's just shoot it. He's like, no, there's a great Eurasian coming. Wait, it is yeah. like, be so mad. But uh, so we get a lot of American-Eurasian hybrids, and then uh, we caught a beautiful um, – Pintail mallard yeah. hybrid at, at okay. Delavan. Very nice. That, I think that one's still floating around too. I haven't seen that harvest. And and though. so for hybrids in waterfowl, they are able to successfully interbreed. Yes, but the the, the, the offspring. offspring are typically infertile. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay, so you can have I, one. You can have one generation of a hybrid, and that's it. Generally, I, yeah. It depends on how far the genetics are apart. So I think with those widgeon. Uh, oftentimes you're looking at like an F2 or an F3 hybrid. So you're looking at a hybrid's offspring because, you know, American Eurasian widgeon are obviously pretty close together. They're both widgeon. Yeah, but and you so couldn't have, you can have like a pintail and a mallard. They have a hybrid and then that hybrid goes and I, hybridizes. I think they can. I think they can. Okay. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent on that, but I'm pretty sure they can. That would be, that would be an yeah. interesting one. But once yeah. you get into like a mallard merganza or something. So, I so I know one of the ones that catches a lot of attention is the old zebra sprig. So go ahead and <laughs> give me, give me the details on a zebra sprig. Well, the zebra sprig, I guess I coined that term a bunch of years ago. I mean, we, uh, we kept catching these birds that, um, they, they have like a zebra stripe pattern on them. Right. Yeah. And we would catch them and we'd be like, uh, they were they had male characteristics, yep. but they when you pop them out to check for a penis, there's no penis, right? So we're going like, what the heck is going on with these birds? 
and we, we'd mostly catch them in, in pintail shots. So we'd get them, and we'd, you'd, you'd just notice the bird right away, like something's off, something's funky. And uh, what we've come to find out, uh, kind of le- looking at, is it's basically just a old female that starts losing their estrogen, mm-hmm. and then they um, start showing more male traits. So they, their bill never really changes, but their plumage can actually change and shift. And so, um, yeah, we coined them zebra sprig. Yeah. And what's it's kind of taken off. <laughs> yeah, it, it really has. But what's neat is I've, I've had guys now that have shot old banded hen sprig that, that originally were banded as females, right, eight, yeah. eight plus years ago. And then they shoot it like an eight-year-old bird. And it, it has those zebra characteristics, so it definitely correlates to the age of the, the so birds. So if, if you trap one of those zebra sprig, are you putting extra notes in that band to notice? Like like if somebody, you know, you you trap that bird, say it's postseason in March, and then somebody shoots it in October earlier in the year, and they return that band in, is it going to say it's a female? Because it is technically it, a female. It will say female, okay. yeah. So the, the zebra sprig is just a, a term that we kind of jokingly – coined and made up just to reference them yeah and you know it kind of started off like oh we pick up one here and there and Mm -hmm. it just seems like it's becoming more common or we're noticing it more gotcha and it's we get mallards like that too they just don't get the zebra pattern so they don't have a cool name like that they don't get noticed as much (laughs) but we call them hermes or hermaphrodites we get we catch a couple every summer and you're looking at like a male duck, but it's got, you know, male mallard, but it's got that bright orange bill with black markings. You're yeah. like, that's off. And sometimes, like, you know, when we're catching birds in the summer into early fall, they're all brown. They're straight brown. Hens look a lot like drakes. So when you catch one like that, it kind of catches you off guard. Mm-hmm. Like some of those zebra sprig we caught, we're catching them right now in September, and you pull it out of the net, and you're like, it's a fully, it looks like a fully plumed adult male. It's got a really? sprig on it and everything. But it's tiny. It's like so, a hen. So they'll get their colors and their plumage before, yeah. like they like early molt or something. Their like molt that. must be all messed up or something. I, That's I don't wild. really know the science behind it, but yeah, you sometimes you'll pull them out and you're like there's some. It looks like a fully plumed adult male, the sprig, but it's September and uh, we just banded 400 adult males and yeah. none of them have had things <laughs> yeah. on them. Huh. And so it's like, what is this? And sure, sure as hell, you pop it and it's like, oh, it's a female. So, wow. Yeah. Well, That's speaking of banding, and you know, you guys are both hunters, and same with you. Um, Carson, so since you're banding these birds, and not every single bird is banded in the world, um, what is that experience like when you do catch a banded bird? And, you know, how does that feel compared to catching or shooting a non-banded bird? So, I mean, bands have uh, turned into kind of like a trophy for Correct. duck hunters, yeah. right? <laughs> and and there's different perspectives. You know, some some people don't like bands. Because they feel that that bird's already been touched by man, yeah. right? And so they it takes yeah, away it's something. It's tainted. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's already been captured. It's tainted. They'd rather have, like, a pure bird that hasn't been captured. Yeah. So I've heard that perspective, too. But for the most part, I mean, shooting a banded bird's exciting, right? Because you get, you get to see the history of that bird, you know? And so, um, you know, you can see when it was banded and then where you shot it. And so that, that to a hunter, is, you know, exciting. You get a little insight of that bird's life. Yeah, so that's shooting a bit. What about if you capture a banded bird in a net what do you guys do with those birds so recaptures yeah so for a a duck banner recaptures are awesome right because you're basically getting potentially another data point right Mm -hmm. so you have your original banding location your recapture location and then potentially somebody shot it or another recapture so you're just adding to more data points for that band 
Um, but generally, um, that's probably one of the most questions we get asked is, do you double band a recapture? And the answer is no, right? It would, yeah. Like we don't give you two social security numbers, right? Yeah. The bird already has a social security number. We, we capture the bird. We record the, the band number. We record the age of the bird. Um, we usually say which foot it was banded on just because we try and stay consistent and band on the left foot. Um, and that, that's really it. And then we report that to the BBL as a recapture. If, if you guys catch one that does have a band that's faded, will you replace the band? Yeah. 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 And that's, that's something, uh, I know some like band purists kind of have a problem with okay. is the fact that we replace a, a worn band. But I mean, I mean, you're looking at a bird that's, you know, the band's worn off. If someone finds it or shoots it or whatever, the odds of them um, sending it in to get etched because that has yeah. a bad reputation. Even yeah. though they send them in, they get etched, they'll send I've had it, it done band. and I got it back. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. People have a, give that a bad reputation. But so, you, I mean, by putting a brand new band on it, we're continuing that data stream from that bird. You get the recapture data because um, either we'll send it in to get etched ourselves or Brian has the equipment to do it at his house so we can just do it ourselves and then, mm-hmm. you know, mark that this band was replaced with this band so that the BBL has that bird, you know, yeah. transferred over to the new band number and it just, it works out better. You get yeah, more data. Definitely. From that That's bird, what so. a lot of people don't understand is that this is all run, like all our bands are ran through the federal BBL, federal bird banding lab. So anybody that bands migratory birds in the United States, they all go through the same federal migratory bird program, right? And so the protocol when you do get one of those worn bands is you take it off because mm-hmm. now you have a, a band that you don't know anything about, right? Because you can't read the Yeah, numbers. the information's gone at that and point. And so now you have to put a new band on there, and so you have to figure out a way to correlate those two bands. Yeah, right? yeah. So you have to etch it. So you can send it in and get it acid yep. etched, or, I mean, it's fairly simple to do yourself, so I've just started doing it myself. And then now, now you have the data to the new band that we have to report to the BBL that's tied to the old band. So there's yeah. no real way to even gotcha. double band yeah, that makes, and leave it on. Yeah, yeah. If we would just look at it but like, I can't read it and toss it, we would have lost the whole data point and then yeah. depended on, you know, if it gets shot, whoever shoots it to report that band. Like it's yeah. just, and to, or to send it in and get it etched, I mean, it's just. Is, is anybody in the state of California still putting on reward bands? For doves. For doves? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yep, they do good. some reward bands for doves, yeah. But no more for ducks? As far as I know, it's been a few years. We did it in, uh, boy, I think it was 2010. Oh, when a while we did ago. It, the last time we did it. I know they're, with reward bands, they don't like saying where they're doing it. Like, it's kind of a which makes Which thing. makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we've done it in California in years past. It's been a long time. I know they're doing some up in Canada this year. Okay. Um, and definitely they do some dove reward bands and stuff, but... Gotcha. But the reward bands, um, for folks that don't know, um, you basically have two sets of bands. One's like a um, placebo bands, and then the ones are the reward bands, right? And so you have these two sets of bands, and you put a hefty reward on the band. So usually it's a hundred dollars. Yeah, I've reward. seen I've seen a hundred dollars. <laughs> so most most people that shoot a hundred, they're going to get a high reporting rate of those bands. Heck yeah! Right? And so this is a way to calculate how many people are actually reporting their bands. Uh, okay, so, so that's that's the data they're trying to get from. That's the, the data they get. Yeah, so they get the Very reporting rates, which I last I heard, I think it was like sixty five or seventy five. Seventy, yeah, somewhere yeah. in there, somewhere in that range. So, about roughly, we'll say seventy five percent of people that shoot a band actually report it. So there's twenty five percent that don't, huh. and so that's how they're coming up with that numbers with okay. this reward band. So if you I band bird A and bird B, and bird B has a reward band. 
bird A does not, and Hunter shoots one of each, and you, you can then get the ratio, basically, of right. what's getting reported. Yeah, and then they can add that into the, the models they have for the, yeah. the duck population, so they know if, you know, 75 mallards got reported, well, 100 of them got shot, and 25 huh. people, you know, because of the reward band. Should all take it. That works. Now, because of banding and, you know, the data that you're able to collect, and, you know, as biologists, I imagine this is very important um, to not just your job, but the population for birds and the ability for them to keep growing and keep surviving and repopulating. So how important are the volunteers, the kids, the researchers to keep this going, whether it be rocket netting or banding or the transmitters? I mean, how is how important are the the individuals that get involved? I would say it's important to, I mean, from the hunter standpoint, it's important to report your band. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're just, you, the people have these claims, I should report them because it looks like we're killing more birds. I mean, people get all into the weeds with it. Report your band. I think it's a good practice. And for once, you get a little bit of history on where that bird, I mean, you get, it might yeah, only it's be cool, one. It's cool information to have. Right. I mean, you shoot hundreds of birds a year sometimes, and you don't know where any of them came from. Well, finally, you get one, and you yeah. could tell. You, I mean, it may have been banded a year ago five miles away, <laughs> or it could have been 15 years old from, you know, Russia, like a lot of these snow geese are. And so for once, you get a little bit of information on your bird, which is cool. You get the certificate from the BBL. You, get, you can frame it and hang it there. I mean... I, I think it's just a good practice to report your bands, um, and it, it helps it helps science. The more data points we have on these birds, the better, and that that'll help our populations of waterfowl going into the future. It can, it's also you know an in, indicator of how the production was for that year. So you can use the age ratios of adults to juveniles, and then you can see how well the production was. So if there's a high ratio of uh, a juveniles more juveniles than adults then you can assume that that was a good production year on birds and you can get that from doing the banding data and banding them as adults or or hatcher birds and then you also get the survival rates too so you can see the survival rates generally speaking most young birds get shot when they're young but if they survive a duck season or two then they can live typically longer so that you can pull out these survival rates um, and then the Federal government, state governments and stuff use that data to kind of help assess the populations and help, you know, throw it into these big models that help set the, the population um, goals and, and uh, harvest, harvest regulations. Okay. And so, like, you know, obviously you guys, you, you ban them and that becomes, you know, a natural thing, a part of your job. Now, who else can ban them? Is this something that, you know... I was like, hey, I want to band a duck. I want to be able to do that. Is that something that I'm able to do? Or, I mean, how do I get involved to do that? I know that when I went to the kids' camp, you know, they do, you guys came out and did banding with the kids. So how are different ways that it, if you um, wanted to be involved with I that? would say it changes during what we're chasing. So the rocket netting is kind of the most charismatic, right? It's like yeah. the funnest. It's these rocket nets. But it's honestly, it's the most unpredictable. Right. I mean, we... We might set a net, um, like for instance, last week we set two nets. Um, the next day we had 200 birds under the net. We shot it. The other net we set, a pintail never went close to that net the rest <laughs> of the week, right? So you just never know with rocket netting. And it's extremely unpredictable. Um, we, we generally have people help us with rocket netting that we know and that we know can handle, you know, pulling birds out and that they can help. Um, 
Summer banding is probably the easiest way to help get involved. And that kind of changes every summer based on drought conditions and habitat conditions. But um, for the last five or six years, we've gone down to the grasslands generally. Um, we go down there in June, and that's a really good time for volunteers to come out because we have traps set up. And it's more or less a guarantee that you're going to get some birds in those traps for the most part. And so that's an easy way for volunteers to help. Um, on California Waterfowl's website, there's a volunteer tab, I believe, where you can apply to be a volunteer and check the duck banding box, and you'll be put on a list. And anytime we have a good opportunity for something like that, like when I'd go down to the grassland, we didn't do it this year because of staffing and where the birds were and stuff. But when we have a good opportunity, like we're running swimming traps in the area, we're going to be there for a few months. We got 60 days to bring volunteers out, and we, you know, you're going to have some birds in the trap every day. So it's a good, yeah. good opportunity. I would reach out to that whole list, like, hey, saw you were interested in duck banding. We're banding in, you know, this area of the valley. If you're around and you want to come and ban some birds with you and your kids, uh, so let me know, email. Yeah. We can pick a date and time, and we can do it. Definitely. So that's a good opportunity. As far as banding yourself, uh, CDFW has a dove banding program. You can ban doves yeah, in your you're, backyard. You're, you're not allowed to ban waterfowl without a permit, correct? Right. You need to be working under a master master banders permit. So. Federal permit and also state permit. So. Yeah. yeah. So going back to banding and, and wood duck stuff um, for your job, I've you know been in the office for a long time, and I've heard rumors floating around here and there. CWA is on its one millionth wood duck. Can you explain how that's coming about and what that entails, and and what what all these these talks are about? Yeah, so the the wood duck program has been around since ninety one. Um, that's when California waterfowl really kind of took control of it. Um, it's been around before that, but that's where we kind of tried to put it all under one umbrella. And so since we've started keeping track of. Um, yearly data from projects across the entire state. Um, not not this this year, but next spring we're gonna we should be guaranteed to hit our one millionth wood duckling that's jumped out of our. Is, is there anything special for this wood duckling that's going to be jumping out? Well, we're we got, in we some got, talks we got a, about we got a, a few cake? things. We yeah, got, what do we you got? Know, <laughs> we were gonna we were gonna do the golden band. You know, I, I'm all for it. Yeah, so, no, we've had band. some discussions about. Uh, we're definitely going to be promoting it. Um, we're going to have a new. Uh, Can we get like a live feed of the boxes coming out of? We've talked to this. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. So we've got we've got some stuff in the works, and we're working on it. Um, so we'll be rolling that stuff out here soon. But yeah, it's a huge milestone for the Wood Duck program. Yeah, it's and amazing. It's, uh, I mean, most folks don't realize, but the Wood Duck program. I mean, I kind of I'm the the Wood Duck program coordinator, but <laughs> it's really all volunteers across the whole state that are doing all the work. I really just kind of take their data and compile it, you know, and help obviously help with projects and banding and all that stuff. But it's really the volunteers across the, the whole state that, that really run that program yeah. and, and do all the, the work. So yeah, definitely. Wood ducks were at the brink of extinction, right? And yeah. That, that yep. wood duck box has kind of brought them back. Yep. So that, Through habitat loss and overhunting, And then the migratory bird treaty act that, you know, kind of put real restrictions on hunting, and then uh, some. Some folks developed this artificial nest box that yeah. they threw up, and, the and it worked. Started using, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, especially in California, I think we've lost like ninety eight percent of our riparian habitat. Yeah, so that riparian habitat is like a densely vegetated waterway. Okay, and that's kind of like the prime habitat for wood ducks, and a lot of that habitat is gone. Um, so traditionally, wood ducks. You'd have a, a tree branch, and that would break off, and then over time it would create a cavity, so a yeah. natural cavity, and that's what generally wood ducks would naturally nest in. Well, we've lost a lot of that habitat, so now with the implementation of wood duck boxes, you can put these artificial boxes out, 
and wood ducks will key in on them. You you know, you make the hole a certain size, the box a certain depth, all these things that go into it. And it's really brought the the wood duck population, you know, bounced back. So I know me personally working at some of California waterfowl's properties up in the Butte Sink, we tend to see a lot of mergansers in these boxes. Um, Can you talk about, you know, their nesting compared to wood ducks? Are they affecting the wood ducks? And are we banding these mergansers that are in our boxes? Yeah, so um, generally the mergansers nest a little bit earlier than wood ducks. So for the most part, they're not affecting the the nesting too much, but they definitely are when they kind of get to that time period, um, late April and May, where they're kind of both trying to nest at the same okay. time. So, I mean, we've had a lot of boxes that have wood duck eggs and merganser eggs in it. Oh, and interesting. It's, we've had it both ways, where it's a merganser sitting on the nest or a wood duck sitting on the nest. Will they successfully hatch those? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah they'll successfully hatch out. Um, so we always joke, you know, there's a wood duck running around with little fish eaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or the hen wood duck freaks out when the babies start diving and picking up yeah. fish. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we, uh, through the wood duck program, we do band um we have our projects and we also manage some other projects and we have banders that band for us so some some folks uh, especially in the butte sink area that whole like butte creek corridor is where we see a lot of the hooded mergansers yeah and um it, they definitely are taking over some projects but like i said if you're managing your boxes and you kind of let the mergansers nest early and then get them get it ready for the wood ducks to come in a little later um it's there's usually not too much conflict there but will, yeah, we, will you ban the hen mergansers you know the answer to that. Uh, yes, of course we do. Yeah. All right. We ban the we ban the hood of mergansers. We ban the uh, the hen wood ducks as well. How many were shot at? Okay, yeah. Uh, that, that's my that's my next question. I mean, that's my question for so, you. How many do? How many were killed? So at at our at our waterfowl property, CWA's waterfowl property in the Butte Sink, I think we had probably three or four hood mergansers get shot that were banded with probably about the same amount of wood ducks. So if you guys are out there looking, you know, to shoot your first band and you see a lawn dart fly by no, you do see that, not pass it yeah. up do it's, not it's pass hard. it you up you see that nice drake you know hooded merganser and everybody keys in on him but yep. the hens are the ones sporting the yeah, so, so you heard yeah. it here first from the biologist <laughs> do not pass up hen mergansers but that drake merganser makes a great mount that that's you can <laughs> hey hey good shot get both of them you get your band you get yeah, your mount there you go sounds like you're trying to up the bird average Hey, uh, anything we can do. If you're, if we're promoting uh, merganser hunting in the Butte Sink, I we, think we got uh, we got to start you somewhere. Need to work on your habitat or something. You know, as a lot of people are armchair biologists and and may have an idea, wood duck boxes are something that easy that people can put up. I know my in laws live on the Stanislaus River and have wood ducks, and they should probably, I should probably put one up for them. But I remember story your parents put one up in reno tahoe yeah i mean so wood ducks they never surprise me where they end up nesting and where they don't nest too yeah right? so um yeah my folk we grew up i grew up in south lake tahoe we have a small little stream in our backyard and my entire life i've never saw a wood duck back there never heard of wood duck and my dad's like hey you know i'd like to try and put a box up there mm-hmm. I said, oh <laughs> sure dad yeah, yeah, yeah it, good right? luck <laughs> that that Next nesting season, he had a hen wood duck in the box. So right they'll away. find him wherever you yeah. put him. So it's amazing. Um, and every year since, he's had wood ducks come really? back. And he's added boxes, and he's got some neighbors that add <laughs> some boxes. So, so so if somebody was to think, hey, I might have you know a, 
a creek or an access, what should they do? Should they reach out to us? Do we have plans that we can provide them? What's their step to, you know, yeah. to provide that habitat? So there's uh, you can go on our California waterfowl website. Um, there's a whole section on the wood duck program. There's all kinds of data. You can learn how to build the boxes. Um, but generally speaking, you, first of all, you got to get permission on whoever's land it is, mm-hmm. where to put it. You basically got to build a box, get a box somewhere. You can buy boxes from us. We sell okay. for $40 So we do sell them. Um, there's free plans online that show you how to break down a sheet of plywood to get three boxes out of each sheet mm-hmm. of plywood. Fairly pretty simple process if you have any kind of, you know, saws or woodworking tools. Um, and then um, from there, it's really just getting the box up and, you know, getting it somewhat close to water. I mean, literature says that you can have – um, about a mile away from water. Wow. Which is that far. far. Yeah. Um, I lived in Yuba city and I put a wood duck box in my backyard that I was using for target practice with my pellet gun. <laughs> and, Cause it was an old beat up box. Right. Yeah. And one morning we go out there and there's a pair of wood ducks sitting. Really? On top and we're, and how far away from water? We were at least a half mile away. Wow. From any kind of water. And it wasn't very, a good water source. Right. Yeah. And so, Sure enough, the hen decided to nest in that box (laughs) right there in Yuba City. I mean, and then we've had the other side of the spectrum too, right? There's a spot on um, uh, the bypass Mm -hmm. and you'd go there and you'd flush out hundreds of wood ducks. And so we helped start a project. We put 25 boxes out there. And for three years, we had one wood duck in that (laughs) box. And so it just blows your mind on, you know, where they they choose to go and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I mean, the other thing too is most uh, waterfowl, Wherever they're born, they tend to go back to that same area and nest. Oh. So if you have a like at my parents' house in Tahoe, for instance, a lot of those wood ducks that are coming back are likely offspring of that first female, or or you know the females from her her. So it'll be repetitive from that hatch to that right. same box. Yep, very same, same box. box or same area. Yeah. So her. So now my mom has a. It's so close to the house that we actually have a camera in there. <laughs> yeah. And so we can watch them. And she had two hens sitting in the box, and they were just hanging out together, like probably related, a mother daughter or something, some yeah. kind of a you know relationship there. And so. Um, that's what's neat too about the wood duck program is you you build these boxes and then you're continuously building your local population if you have successful boxes because they're going to come back and try and hatch in that that's awesome yeah. my mom would love that hey start <laughs> it no matter it. where it is just start right, it there's mom, water Oklahoma, nearby my mom she can sit in her dining room table and watch the wood duck boxes and she takes meticulous notes <laughs> all the birds it's so awesome my mom wanted wood duck boxes they live on the Salmon River in Idaho, and so uh, sent my dad the plans. He built some boxes, put three or four up and around. They have a you know, two-acre trout pond, a little creek running through the property, all the good stuff. And uh, one day, like, a hen and her brood of wood ducks popped out in the pond. They're like, oh, yeah, the boxes are working. Well, my dad went and checked the boxes to clean them out, and there was no eggshells or nothing. And come to find out, my mom's found the nest, the natural cavity that this wood duck's going into, like, 40 feet in the air in this aspen tree. Oh, so she chose the natural cavity. She chose cavity. the natural Same cavity. Yeah. Yeah. The man yeah. Would. yeah. And so none of their wood duck boxes have been used, but they're on a, you know, a untouched stretch of river in, you know, yeah. the middle of nowhere, Idaho, where they still have some habitat. Cavities. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of funny, too. Well, um, one of my last questions I have for you guys, kind of wrapping up everything that we've talked, you know, I know that you both come from different directions of how you got involved with hunting and how you got involved with being a biologist and all those different things. So how has being a biologist, even even though that conservation is kind of a forefront, 
while being a hunter, how has those two things kind of been, how have you been able to live with both of those kind of, because they kind of are like oil and water sometimes. They don't mesh all together all at once, always. So how has kind of those two things, how has that impacted your job or your friendships or just kind of maybe your different view on hunting now that you've been a biologist? I mean, hunting is conservation, 100%. And I've always thought that if you ever want, if you ever had a species of concern that you wanted to raise money for or, you know, increase population for, open a season on them because you're going to raise a lot. All of a sudden, like a bird that you would, no one cares about, you let some people start shooting them. And then all of a sudden there's a lot of money going into conservation for that species. And with waterfowl, like Brian was saying, it's all, it's all habitat driven. It, the, the amount of harvest doesn't really affect our populations that much. And so, I mean, being a hunter gave me the the passion for waterfowl and wanting to conserve and see more in the air when I'm out there hunting next and, you know, do what I can, just handle birds. I mean, as dumb as that sounds, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's your hunting in the office. Yeah, people yeah. Are like just handling a, a, you know, you shoot a bull sprig and while you're hunting and it's dead and then you put it in a strap, whatever, handling a hundred of them and banning them, letting them go is probably even cooler yeah and so i I think it's the stage of you know honey it's like i me personally i would rather take people out and see them harvest their first bird you you know you would rather handle those hundred pintail and let them be released to go for somebody else like that that's that's what you have become as a biologist as a hunter like you want to give back to the next generation yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I'd add is, is sometimes it's tough wearing both hats, right? Because yes. there's some things that's I kind of where do, I was getting at. Some things I I want to do as a hunter, and other things I have to do with the science, right? And so yeah. sometimes yeah. those conflict, and so kind of knowing where to where to kind of balance that. Mm-hmm. There's been a few issues that make it make it tough, you know. But um, overall, you know, you really have to just put it aside and do what's best for the the resource i guess no 100 percent. do you use kind of your the education and the knowledge and the research that you've gained to kind of further your passion for hunting and allow other people to learn and then it kind of gives them the understanding of what that you've learned and how you have educated and then it keeps the kind of passion for hunting continuing and growing along with conservation and on like it it's like wildfire to all these other different elements that you get to be able to continue. What's really fun is uh, as a biologist, just explaining, you know, general stuff to the yeah. average hunter. Like why, why are mallards going into that field? Oh, it's cause it's covered in smartweed and toolies. Like, yeah. You know, it's like to eat smartweed. <laughs> like, like, oh, that's food. what that, that red stem vegetation is <laughs> yeah. that I hate. I'm like, was, that's mallard yeah. candy. Like, what you thought was weeds is yeah, actually exactly. food. Right, yeah. <laughs> Say it's actually kind of the opposite of what you would think that, you know, we're using our, job as biologists to improve our hunting but for me it was i had a degree in marine biology basically as like i said i knew nothing book wise about ducks i never had a class on it none of my teachers ever mentioned waterfowl and so stepping into a biology position i you know i didn't know all the book stuff about them but i knew how to sneak up on them i knew how to walk in waders i knew a lot of stuff that, you, you know, I knew what a pintail looked like flying in the air versus a widgeon, yeah, all that 100%. stuff. So I used my hunting background to help my biology. And then all the the biological stuff I've learned from working with other people in the yeah. field. Definitely. So it's, it's not a prerequisite to get a job with <laughs> us to be a hunter. But if if 
when we're hiring people for like these rock and netting jobs and stuff, I mean, we, if, if you're a duck hunter, it's the passion we, you're looking for, right? But we already know if you're a hunter that you already kind of understand yeah. the program, right? You Definitely. have to scout, you have to find a location, you have to be able to view the birds without scaring them off. You know, there's all these factors that are so tightly associated with hunting. I remember I, I walked for my interview, I walked into this office, right? I mean, I did the interview in this room. Yeah. I walked in here with him and the supervisor, Caroline at the time, who became both of our supervisors, was not here. She was out doing something at a bird symposium or something. And uh, so my interview was with Brian and he sat me down. He's like, the first question on our interview sheet is, do you hunt? And <laughs> so we talked about hunting for 45 minutes and that turned into fishing for 45 minutes. <laughs> I don't think we ever got to really into the interview questions. And he said, you'll hear back from me. And I, now what, you're eight, eight years, we eight years later, interview questions eight years later HR, and you're yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just been moving up the chain ever since. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Well, I think that is kind of all we have prepared for you guys today. I think we've been able to learn so much, and hopefully our listeners have as well. I mean, you guys bring so much to the table from an education standpoint. I mean, you're both biologists. You both come from not such a like a heavy, dense background in hunting, and you wanted to learn. It was a passion choice, and I think that is important for new hunters or maybe people that want to get back into it, knowing that it's not something that you need to have had forever. I mean, even someone like me, if I wanted to get into hunting, it makes me go, okay, if so-and-so can do it, then I can too. You just got to be smarter than the birds and their brain isn't very big. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel good. Just be a little smarter than them and I can do that. I mean, I feel like with the knowledge and training that you guys have always prepared me with that I could do that. So definitely. Um, thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, thank, thank you, you guys so much, for coming. Jason. And as always, it. my, my bestie pal Carson, I'm always here. <laughs> thank you guys for being on the podcast. We look forward to talking with you soon. All right. See you thank guys you. soon. Thank you for watching the save it for the blind podcast. If you liked this episode, please like, and subscribe for more.